This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, June 20th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, high-speed crash kills two. Finding intimacy with the landscape, gondola planning continues, and a mountain weather forecast. Two Illinois men died last week after their car crashed in Dry Creek Basin. According to the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office, Larry Chachko and Michael Mraz were in the area as part of a Crown Rally automotive enthusiast group. The men were driving a Porsche on Highway 141 when the vehicle left the road, jumped a fence, rolled several times, and ejected the driver. The men were reportedly driving 140 miles per hour at the time. The speed limit in the area is 65 miles per hour. Sheriff Bill Masters extends his condolence to the families, noting high-speed crashes in the area do happen. It's not like they're on the Autobahn. This is a a rural road that has, um, you know, uh, uh, imperfections because it's it's not, you know, high-speed road. It's got a speed limit of 65, and, and, and most of it, some of it's quite a bit lower than that. It does have sudden curves and dips and um, uh, that can be deceiving in the road, uh, some of the, the, uh, the dips and bumps and stuff. So I could see how someone driving at excessive speed could hit one of those dips and and um, you know, lose control of their vehicle. We also have to look at all the wildlife and the cattle and um other livestock that might be out there that that, uh, people need to pay attention to. Trotchko is survived by his sister, Marina, his mother, Ida, his children, Justin and Mia, and his wife, Camilla. He was 44 years old. Mraz was 38 years old. He is survived by his wife, Cassandra. Craig Childs wants those who live on this land in southwest Colorado to develop a deeper intimacy with rock art. It isn't just decoration or, you know, pretty pretty images on a, on a rock. It, realizing that, that, oh, this is this is actually really specific information, even if I don't know what the information is. This is this is conveyed and put here for a reason. Childs is a critically acclaimed author living in Norwood. His most recent book is titled Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. I want us to be, you know, and, and me to be, to have a deeper relationship with with my place, with our place. And and that was my intention with this book, is to is to take us there, is to, is to say, here's Hear stories about the place in which we live. Childs will be in Telluride on Tuesday for another installment of Authors Uncovered, a collaborative series between the Wilkinson Public Library and between the Covers Bookstore. Childs notes tracing time is the culmination of multiple decades of research and conversation. Once you start looking, you realize that oh, the landscape is really covered with with rock art. Um, so many rich pockets of it that you you come to understand that it's it's all around us and it is in essence the um the oldest human sign on the land or the the oldest human expression of of um you know of communication of of uh um 
you know, guardians of places, of, of, of stories being told, legends. Um, it's, it's the real seniority on the land. He says looking at and approaching rock art to him puts our lives in the greater context. What you learn is, is that, that you're inside of a, a much older human context than, than maybe we think of day to day, that we're, you know, we're moving through our lives, we're driving up and down the, the highway, we're, we're um, going to work, and, and we're thinking, okay, this is, this is it. This is, this is what time is. This is what history is. This is, uh, you know, it, it's all about us here now. And this is saying, no, it's, so, it's been about other people all along, that we are, we are in a much bigger context. Um, and for me, it just gives me this, uh, it just, it opens up all the doors and windows where I think it's easy to live boxed in, um, boxed into our time and our experience now. And it opens it up so much more for, for me to look at and go, okay, we are this thin veneer of, of asphalt and, and construction on top of, um, a much deeper history. Childs asks those who live in the area to sit with the artwork that tells the story of a place. With that said, he notes it's a delicate balance. He doesn't want to oversaturate sacred spaces. I'm often not saying what state I'm in. Um, you know, just I'm I'm more talking about how it sits on the land, and rather than trying to lead people to specific sites. Um, and it's not that I want to keep people away from rock art. It's that I don't want to um, highlight certain places, you know, especially remote places where, or or little known places where where human impact can can quickly ramp up. He wants to encourage honor for place. This isn't just you know just random old decoration. These are these are clan stories and origin stories, and they're put here in this place each rock art site a specific place for a specific reason and and so i'm i'm balancing it in the book with saying okay there's all this incredible stuff around you uh on the on the rock faces but realize how old it is and how important it is and how we have to be careful with it how you know some sites i don't go up to the rock art i just carry binoculars so that I can stand at a distance and still see it, but not go up and and crush the grasses on the ground and, and harden the space in front of it. So it's, it's always a balance, and it was tricky writing this, knowing that you know, in a way I'm going, go out and look at it, it's everywhere, and in another way I'm going... Be really careful. Don't don't damage these places. Don't don't touch them with your hands because your skin oils will will wear wear the paint off or or um, or start to to mar the the petroglyphs. Craig Child will be at the Wilkinson Public Library for the authors uncovered tracing time book talk on Tuesday, June twenty first at five thirty p.m. It's clear. The gondola between Telluride and Mountain Village is an integral part of the community. The transit system has been in place for 25 years and carries approximately 3 million people between the towns each year. But the current operating contract for the gondola expires in 2027. So local governments and stakeholders are looking to the future and what the gondola could look like for the next 25 years. 
Last week, Miles Graham gave Telluride Town Council an update on the project. He says there are three possible options. The first was status quo, continuous smaller upgrades to the current system. Option two was really a minimum and a maximum, looking at major upgrades to parts of the existing system, but keeping station locations and design the same, or making major upgrades to the entire system to maximize capacity. And then option three was removal of the old system and a new system. And and certainly that one has a minimum and a maximum as well. Graham is a consultant with GBSM Inc., a firm facilitating the collaborative planning process for the future of the gondola. He says when thinking through the three options, it's important to look at how each stands up to value drivers for the community. The first is system flexibility. Because the existing gondola system on a busy day moves about 20,000 people, which makes it one of the busiest transit corridors in the state of Colorado. And so um, this is a really unique and interesting system, but it is at capacity and the wait times can be lengthy. The next is passenger flow. Level loading and larger doors make it very much easier for people with gear, people with mobility issues and disabilities, um, strollers to get in and out and to bring in funding from the Federal Transit Administration. ADA compliance, which the current system is not, is a key factor. And it also improves capacity because it speeds the loading and unloading process. Finally, a cost-benefit analysis. Which of those options that we looked at provides the greatest benefits for the most cost-effective investment and minimizes potential risk factors? Based on those factors, earlier this year, Graham says the leadership committee for the gondola unanimously decided to scrap the options to do nothing or minor improvements to the gondola. That means some sort of major upgrade is coming in the future. According to Graham, looking at the cost, major upgrades or building a completely new gondola are pretty similar. A new system versus retrofitting the old system is actually fairly comparable in terms of capital investment. And then the operating costs are actually lower for a new system because they're more efficient. Um, They require less maintenance. And so the operating costs over time, when you look at the 20-year cost of total ownership, is actually makes that, that new system even more compelling. Of course, deciding to move forward with a new gondola system isn't as easy as just making the decision. I feel like now the hard work and the exciting work really begins. It's exciting to think about the future possibilities at some of these stations. How we're going to fund it is always the hardest question. And so that's where this summer having a workshop to really fill in some of these blanks is what is our total capital cost? What capital reserves, if any, can be applied to um, funding this system? What revenue increases should we be looking at, whether they're fares, tax increases, things like that, Um, debt financing, maybe bond issuance, loans, just loans. And this is going to be up to the the leadership committee to say, here's what our preferences are and how we'd like to explore different funding mechanisms and then grant opportunities. How do we take the local match that's provided from capital reserves, revenue increases at the local level or some local debt financing to use that to pursue outside federal funding or state or or other local funds. The Gondola Committee will have its next leadership meeting on Monday, June 27th at 3 p.m. There will also be a community survey circulating this summer to gather more information on who and how individuals use the gondola and what they'd like to see for the future. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will host a meeting on Wednesday to discuss their mine tailings remediation work on the valley floor west of Telluride. 
The work began last summer and resumed earlier this year, with trucks hauling tailings from the valley floor to the Idorado repository on the east end of town. I am happy that uh, from a hauling standpoint, um, EPA uh, has agreed to not haul on festival weekends or on days where we have road closures. That's Telluride Town Manager Scott Robson briefing town council on the work at their meeting last week. Thus far, the air monitoring uh, services that they've been providing have all been looking good. We haven't really had any um, big bumps from a particulate standpoint out there with their work. So far, Robson adds, there have not been any trail reroutes along the river, but he says to expect some later in the summer. The public meeting to discuss updates on the EPA's valley floor work will be on Wednesday, June 22nd at the Wilkinson Public Library from 12 to 2 p.m. Two new vending locations are all but sure coming to the town of Telluride. These two new locations are being proposed to allow for the sale of wares, goods, services, merchandise, or food from a display apparatus which is the same as the other Colorado Avenue vendors besides North Spruce Park. So that would allow for a food cart vendor, or um, this summer we had a vendor that applied for an art cart to sell jewelry and other art from local artists. So those types of carts would be an approvable use in this location. That's Tiffany Cavanaugh, Telluride Town Clerk, presenting at Town Council last week. The two locations are on the sidewalk just in front of the South Spruce Park and on the corner of Pacific and Fur, just outside the AHA School for the Arts. Kavanaugh notes she has heard concern from the AHA about the location. It sounds like they get large deliveries where they need to utilize a large portion of this sidewalk. And then um, people do gather for different classes out here um, in this area. But she says staff feels they can compromise to allow for both a vending cart and AHA use. Council unanimously voted to approve the two new vending locations. It plans to vote on the ordinance on second reading at a special meeting on Tuesday, June 28th. On the whole, we pay attention to what we put in our bodies and what comes out of them. But did you know your cells pay attention to the same task? The nuclear pore complex regulates the travel of ions, small molecules, and macromolecules to determine gene expression, reactions to change in the environment. It has also been linked to the creation of cancer and diseases. Research into the working of the nuclear pore complex can help shed light on how we treat those diseases and understand our bodies on the nano level. This week, scientists C. Decker, Michael Rout, and Anton Zillman will speak on the tiny gatekeepers of the nano-universe as part of the Telluride Science Research Center's Town Talk series. The talk will be hosted by award-winning journalists Judy Muller and George Lewis. It will take place on Tuesday, June 21st at 6.30 p.m. at the Transfer Warehouse. The event is free and open to the public. Primary elections for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District are here. In anticipation of the hotly contested race, KVNF Radio spoke with candidates running to represent the Western Slope in Congress. Kate Redmond spoke with Sol Sandoval. Colorado District House of Representatives candidate Sol Sandoval is the daughter of immigrants who came here seeking a better life. She was born in Colorado and graduated from CSU in Pueblo. She is a working mom of two, social worker, 
faith-based community organizer and an advocate for health equity. She has been campaigning in the state for over a year to unseat Lauren Boebert. What do you think is the single most important issue facing the residents of the 3rd District? It seems like every other year someone comes by and wants to steal the water that literally originates from CD3. So I would say one of the most important issues is absolutely fighting for our water. There's so many industries like the ag industry that rely on it. So I would say absolutely water. What is a specific piece of signature legislation you want to author in Congress? The very first bill that I would sponsor to protect our democracy would be the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We are extremely fortunate that here in Colorado, we actually had just in 2020, 86 voter turnout, which was second highest in the entire nation. And so we know that we have a great system in place, but now we need to elect people like myself who will actually hold clerks accountable to ensure that they're fulfilling their duties as trusted elected officials and to make sure that the entire nation can enjoy the exact same voting process. Talk about your involvement with water conservation, water delivery, and protecting watersheds. Even as a candidate, I have already started having conversations, developing relationships with Republicans. I met with Senator Cleve Simpson because I realized that this is something that is important to the entire district and not just Democrats. We are going to have to collaborate across party lines to protect our water. Most recently, RWR, Renewable Water Resources, they're wanting to come in with their buy and dry scheme. And we know that there are some powerful developers who are supporting this. And so if elected, I will send a clear message that our water is not for sale. It's time to put Colorado first. Talk about how you think our current Congress member, Lauren Boebert, is doing. She's really not representing us and she's utilizing her platform as a way to just pick fights on the internet and boost her likes on Twitter. We need a representative who is committed to improving people's lives, who cares about working people, who cares about farmers, ranchers, small businesses. She has literally turned down everything that would improve our lives and improve the district. Just to name a few, she voted no on the I-70 Aspen improvement, voted no against protecting seniors from emergency scams, no to the American Rescue Plan, which would have actually helped small businesses, no in support of violence against women, (laughs) no in support of Equal Credit Act that would protect LGBTQ businesses, no to drug-free communities, no to fentanyl sanctions. I mean... I can go on and on and on and know on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? Something that would be my top priority coming in because in order to preserve our democracy, we have to make sure that it's accessible to everyone, right? Not just to the Dems, not just to the Republicans, to everyone. Reporting for KVNF, I'm Kate Redmond. The 2022 primary election is on Tuesday, June 28th. Climate change is reshaping the natural world, but one animal is doing its part to fight back. A new study lays out all the ways beavers are helping reshape rivers and streams, creating healthy waterways that are more resistant and resilient to the worst effects of climate change. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. In the foothills of Boulder County, Colorado, there's a kind of secret water park. It's just not for humans. 
and you just get this totally ridiculous like water slides everywhere and waterfalls and you can't even tell where one dam starts and the other one stops because they're all going at weird wonky angles against each other. Emily Fairfax and I are knee deep in a watery wonderland of clear frigid runoff shaped and sculpted by North America's largest rodent. She is an eco-hydrologist and knows more about beavers than just about anyone. Fairfax tells me this kind of area is called a beaver complex, and it really is complex. From here, we can see a pond, a lodge. And then a bunch of different little pools and waterways and channels that are full of water, sort of routing around the landscape, diverting some of that overtopping water out into the floodplain. And the fact that this beaver complex makes the stream so messy is a huge boost to every animal that stops here to rest and eat. A few more steps across shallow trickles and squishy patches of soil and undergrowth, there's another sign of life. Whose scat is that? That is a great question. Speaking of animals visiting this site, I almost stepped in a huge pile of evidence here that looks like it's probably either a very large deer or an elk. I would probably lean towards elk. On trail cameras across the western U.S., Fairfax has spotted a ton of wildlife. We've seen bobcat, we've seen cougar, we've seen bears, we've seen possums, skunks, rabbits, raccoons, every kind of frog and bird you can imagine. Fairfax is the co-author of a new paper that explains how beavers and the ecosystems they create by damming up streams are powerful tools in the face of climate change. Chris Jordan is with the Northwest Fishery Science Center in Oregon. He also wrote the paper. If you're storing more water, if you're making a wetter, greener area all along that stream and river network, you're actually affecting an enormous fraction, enormous proportion of the landscape. The new study spells out a lot of practical ways that beaver habitat can help protect against everything from floods to wildfire, both of which are made more severe by climate change. Too much rain or snowmelt? Beaver dams will help spread that water out before it rushes down towards people. If the hills are burning, wet valley floors lush with plants will resist the flames. Too much sediment in the stream? Beaver ponds will slow the water down and help those particles settle out. We're facing these dire warnings about climate change and almost the sort of doom of all of the bad things that are happening and how it's out of our control. But in reality, it's not out of our control. What we can control, Jordan says, is promoting healthy beaver populations and letting them get to work. In a lot of places, they're considered pests and can be killed if they're getting in people's way. But doing the opposite and allowing them to thrive could make western rivers look like they used to, before beavers were seen as a nuisance and before trapping brought their populations down by tens of millions. So if you read some of the earliest written descriptions, whether they're going upstream or downstream, the French, the English, the Dutch, the Spanish, they're all complaining about how hard it is to figure out where the river goes. Ellen Wohl studies the flow and formation of rivers at Colorado State University. She says more beavers mean more streams and rivers go from straight and uncomplicated to the way they behaved hundreds of years ago, before people started to change them. And that's important in a region strained by decades of drought. Most of the Intermountain West, we get our water supplies from the mountains, the nearest mountain range, or in some cases not so near with um, diversions. And I really think beavers can contribute to the health and the sustainability of those mountain watersheds. And while humans have tried to replicate the effects of a good beaver dam, we don't have the teeth, tails, and millions of years of evolution it takes to put together intricate woodwork that lasts.
I'm Alex Hager in Boulder County, Colorado. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-40s. Tuesday, there's a 30% chance of showers with mostly cloudy skies. The high is near 70 degrees with a low around 50. Wednesday, there's a 70% chance of showers with a high in the mid-60s. Wednesday night, there's a 70% chance of showers with a low around 50 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, June 20th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.